Welcome to Inside Track from Planet Tracker, a series of podcasts where we talk about some of the key themes the investment and finance community needs to know about for COP27 this November. I'm Peter Elwin, Director of Fixed Income and Head of the Food and Land Use Programme at Planet Tracker. And in each episode of Inside Track, my guests discuss the finance community's role working alongside policymakers to transform sectors and systems and offer some insights to help us navigate the negotiations in Egypt. Welcome back to Inside Track. In this episode, I'm joined by Planet Tracker's CEO, Robin Millington, and John Willis, Head of Research, to cover what we expect to be a major theme for COP27, food systems. For this episode of Planet Tracker's Inside Track, we'll be answering questions from the financial community about their role in food systems and emphasising the intrinsic link between these systems and our changing climate. Food is not only a core source of environmental problems and a cause of damage to nature, but it is also an absolutely essential part of the solution. We need governments and financial institutions to focus on the global food system as a means to solve the linked climate and nature crises, while providing sufficient healthy food to a growing population. So, Robin, John, let, let's start with a what, what might seem a rather basic question. And Robin, perhaps I can put you on the spot for this first. How sustainable are our current food systems? Thank you, Peter. That's an excellent question. Sustainable can mean many different things. And food systems is also a variety of different ideas. So the food system globally is made up of so many different fragmented pieces of the system. You, when you talk about sustainability, we have to think about what are we talking about? Is it the environment being able to support the growth of food? Is it the transport system? Is it the ability to get the food to market in time? Is it the ability to feed a global population with the resource that we have available? Sustainability runs across also whether the food system is emitting too many emissions and that's then exacerbating our climate change. Overall, no, our food system really is not fit for purpose today. It was an organically grown system, not in the sense that we use organics today, but it was cobbled together from you know small farmers, local farmers, regional, regional markets going to the national level. Now we have this global food system. In a sense, the food and beverage companies, the majors out there today, are managing some pieces of that system well. They are looking at what demands are needed, and they are searching for how to supply that demand. We have enough food to feed the world, and yet with almost 8 billion people today, we still have 1 billion people that don't have enough food, or they're undernourished, or they're malnourished. So the question comes, how in 2050 are we actually going to supply the 10 billion people predicted to be on the planet if we can't even do what we need to do today when we do have enough food supply? And then the other question becomes, if climate change continues, if the degradation of nature continues, if things like the uh, the breaking down of the soils, which need to be able to support the growth of the plants, continues, will we even have enough a land or ability to grow the food for 10 billion people. There are studies I've seen that say, yes, we will. But again, do we even really know how bad the climate change impacts are going to be in terms of the arable space that we have? 
I don't know, but no, I don't think that we are going forward with a sustainable system. So, Robin, you're making a, a number of really important points about the, the food system, and particularly this issue of the of the sort of the, the climate and nature footprint that the food system is currently leaving behind it. John, I wanted to turn this over to you. You know, just what is the impact that the food system is is having on the environment and and on nature? And you know, I mean, maybe is, is technology the solution? Because some people say that it is. Yeah, I mean, good point, Peter. I think uh, there's a frightening number of people who are who are betting on technology and we see it time and time again. I think we're seeing it in the climate space. And, you know, as we're discussing, climate and food uh, are very, very closely interrelated. In other words, we've got to sort of take carbon out of the environment or shove it under the ground because those are the options we're being left with. Um, I think uh, we're seeing the same in food, to be honest. I, I think you've got to bet on a technological solution. Uh, I guess the optimists will turn around and say, we've seen this before. Uh, you've got to go back to the 60s when there was the last, the late 60s, when there was the last great leap, uh, if you like, with the green revolution and you had higher yielding varieties of crops, you had your fertilizers, your pesticides. And by the way, I'm leaving aside very deliberately the environmental effects and that. And that might be someone you want to look at, Peter, about the unintended consequences of all of this. Um, but we're sort of in a position whereby we've got to keep making that technological bet unless we completely swing round and actually starting treating nature and the environment with a lot more respect. And it is interesting. I mean, yeah, you mentioned the sort of the 60s agricultural revolution and, and revolutions that we've had before that. And and I think the challenge, and we've talked about this in, in other episodes in this podcast series, that taking a sort of a, a monoline view of things, focusing just on climate, for example, and ignoring all the nature effects has really sort of deleterious uh, effects, has very serious negative consequences. And, and my concern would be if we carry on sort of trying that approach with the food system, if we just rely on technology, effectively just trying to make the food system more productive and work more efficiently uh, than it has in the past, that actually will end up, A, not achieving our aim in terms of feeding a growing population, but B, not actually solving the problems in terms in, of climate and, and the impact on nature. Yeah, though, Peter, I, I would just say that there are some technologies coming on stream that could actually take us a little bit further forward, could create different productivity without having to squeeze the land so hard. And this is, in my mind, are these, for example, lab-grown proteins, which I think have great potential on the upside to actually helping with the food supply problem. But of course, just solving emissions, if I can just go back to your previous comment, just solving emissions does not solve water scarcity, soil decomposition, and the various uh, environmental impacts that come along with agriculture like the fertilizers and et cetera. So back to your, your comment about only solving one problem, we have to be looking at the totality of the problem, not just one aspect of it. I do worry in the climate discussions that we talk about deforestation from an emissions point of view. But we also have to look at deforestation, like in the Amazon, when the land gets played out, 
then they deforest to start planting again, which is not using the available land to the best possible uh, productivity. And it's just taking more and more land away and then exacerbating the climate problem by taking the trees away. We keep talking about mono issues, but we have to talk about the multiplicity of issues. It's back to a comment I made in a previous podcast. We tend to like to simplify. When we simplify, we feel it's much easier to grasp a hold of things. But the food system is simply too big for us to simplify in that way. Yeah, Robin, I think that's a really good point because I think we can look at a very practical example where you ended up with climate, food, technology, and unintended consequences all wrapped in one, and we've all witnessed it. And and really what what that is, uh, actually coming up with a fairly simple story with actually very complex uh, effects was, you know, what did we do? We we went out and uh, we developed factory ships and we basically plundered the oceans. I don't want to get overly emotional about it, but these, these are not twee little boats. They are absolute factories that are sort of hoovering up um, the oceans and you know we're now in a position whereby there there is not a lot of ocean that is sort of on the brink in effect of uh, sustainability so we do that and then we go no but we've got an answer to that and our answer is aquaculture and actually as humans we we're, we're very ingenious about these things we think about a lot of things so what we do is we start developing aquaculture and it gets bigger and bigger the only problem is that those fish in those cages and they got bigger and bigger and moved more and more offshore um, basically needed feeding so we needed the smaller fish to feed them but the price of that started to rise because we were plundering the ocean so we go well we've got another solution what we'll do is we'll feed them soy the problem was that the soy required deforestation. I had to go to countries such as Brazil. I had to grow it, which resulted in deforestation, which was now affecting the climate. And now where have we ended up? We're ending up with various parts of the coast very, very heavily polluted because we've concentrated a species in a particular area, unintended consequences. OK, we've now gone to... Um, soy that's certified that it doesn't uh, deforest, but we've also now moved onto land. So we're developing aquaculture systems on land. And when you think where we started from, you think, well, that was terribly clever, but it's all a bit absurd. So I'm on a bit of a rant, Peter, but I, I think it's a good example of these unintended consequences and the interrelationships between ocean land and the climate. Yeah, thanks, John. That's, I think, really good that you brought oceans into the equation, because I think it's all too easy to think of food systems as, as sort of, you know, beef and soy and dairy and uh, and those sorts of things, all very land-based. But actually, um, we rely on the oceans for a large sort of proportion of our protein. But as you've just explained, uh, there's a very strong linkage with uh, with the land-based food systems as well. Robin, I wanted to bring you in on, on that point. Well, I think it's very important, and thank you, John, for bringing that up, that seafood feeds 3 billion people as a primary protein. Given we have 8 billion people, that's just under half of our population, and yet 90%, 60% of the seafood stock is in, in trouble or at capacity. 30% is in steep decline. 
And do we even talk about this? There tends to be, again, because there's such a focus on just getting emissions under control, we are all over deforestation and we're all over the land, but we're not thinking about when we talk about a total food system, the oceans is just as much a part of that. And it's so important to also include that in the conversation. It does feel as though a core, the heart of the problem, if you like, is is our sort of attitude to creating food, that we have an, an extractive attitude rather than a, a regenerative attitude. So we were talking in another podcast about natural capital and the need to maintain and, and, and regenerate the natural capital base that businesses depend upon. And, and that ocean's example, John, feels like you know yet another example of just depleting natural resources uh, in our efforts to extract more and more from what the planet provides, where really what we need to be doing is is looking at actually, actually alternative processes, alternative ways of of behaving. Now that all feels a, a, a little bit sort of negative, and uh, and I know that you know there are organisations that have um, put out ambitions for nature positive by twenty thirty. I wanted to ask you both what you think about the direction of travel at the moment. You know, do you think we are actually on the right path? Are we are we anywhere close to the right path or 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 actually we're heading to sort of to crash and burn at some stage in the future and is is positive outcome by 2030 completely unrealistic? Robin, what's your view? Well Peter, as you know, I think 2030 is today. Um, change is not linear. We tend to talk about all this progress that we're trying to make, the the uh, the implementation of new metrics in the financial system or new technologies as if we have this kind of slow linear climb towards 2050. And yet, if you look at what's happening in terms of the droughts, the floods, the climate changes that are suddenly kicking in, even though we still may have the same trajectory at 2050, we're at a tipping point that may flip us up to what people might have thought would be happening in 2030, and it could happen today. I mean, I, to give an example of that, a food-based example, if the drought continues as it is going in California right now, that is the fifth largest economy in the world. It feeds the, it, it supplies the fruit and vegetable 50% to the US. It supplies a large portion of rice to Japan for its sushi. And no water is no water. And no amount of, you know, trying to slowly change and bring in new technologies and use different financial metrics is going to fix the fact that we may have an agricultural decline of significant proportions if we continue just thinking that it's the system as we know it. And I just simply think that we are lacking an urgency right now. Somehow, because the international discussions have said, okay, now we've set this target of 2050, it's almost letting people relax a bit and saying, well, we still have 30 years to fix it. And my message to everybody right now is do not think about that 30-year runway. Think about it as we have to do something today. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And I mean, you know, we all know that if you actually want to change a complicated system like the food system, you need to make small iterative steps, but you absolutely have to get cracking immediately. You can't uh, you can't leave it all to the end. 
John, I wanted to turn over to you because, you know, from a Planet Tracker perspective and the, the raison d'etre behind these podcasts is, is to motivate the financial community to transform systems. So in terms of the food system, what is it that the financial community really needs to begin to focus on to do, as, as Robin was just saying there, to really get things moving now with a real sense of urgency for 2030 rather than pushing it all off into the distant sort of horizons of of 2050. What do we need from the financial community in relation to food systems? I think there's some simple stuff, uh, which fills me with optimism, actually, that we can do the right thing. And there's some complicated stuff. I'll start with the complicated because I want to feel I want to sort of finish on, on a plus, if you like. The complicated stuff is always getting the financial markets, whether it's public or private, by the way, to allocate capital to the right places. And if we're going to solve issues with nature, with food, with renewables, it involves capital. It involves investment. How are we going to help countries deal with water stress? How are we going to help countries deal with soil erosion? How are we going to help countries deal with productivity? And by the way, productivity, that's been uh, a real highlight with the jump in fertilizer costs, which basically, by the way, because people have cut back, is going to play out over a, a couple of years. Those are the more complicated things. And that's why you have cops and big uh, governmental meetings. But there are some really easy things to do uh, as well. And one of the things uh, that we've argued for at Planet Tracker is traceability. I know it's not glamorous. I, I completely get that. But it's very, very easy for financial institutions, especially shareholders, debt holders, etc., uh, to demand traceability. Why? because it makes people think about their supply chains. It makes them look at the unintended consequences of a disruption. And we've sort of just been through this and are still going through it, obviously with the war in Europe, but we went through it with COVID and suddenly everyone's thinking, what's my source? How can I diversify my risk? This is things financial institutions really understand. So. I really think that financial institutions should be speaking to, to companies, especially nature-dependent companies. Nature-dependent sectors are rife. They're all over the place. They're not just the food manufacturers. You know, it's not just commodity companies. When you start to look at it, and there's good work done by the Dutch Central Bank, there's been work done by the WEF in this area about the, the reliance that we have on nature. What? It's about 50% of GDP, and we calculate it's about 40% of global trade. Why wouldn't you trace it? Why wouldn't you want to know what that, um, that supply chain is? And that is simple for financial institutions to ask, and it should be every time a company comes in. That's a powerful claim, John. Robin, you were you were nodding sort of uh, vigorously during uh, John's mm. comments. Well, I think that we should pivot to the work that we are undertaking in terms of a laying out of a roadmap to try and get grips on the financial flows and the financial uh, role in the system. And in fact, Peter, as you're heading that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where we're trying to go with that. 
Yeah, I'd be really happy to, Robin. So I think one of the issues for financial institutions is that uh, the food system is complicated. Some of the solutions can appear quite complicated. And a lot of the, the discussion is quite fragmented. So one of the things that we're doing this year, and we'll, we'll publish this later in the year, is, is creating a, a roadmap, a guide for financial institutions that, that lays out how the system is, is constructed in terms of the types of companies operating at different parts of the system. I think that's a very innovative piece of analysis that's not really been done in this particular way before. And as we've laid out that analysis of the system, we can then understand what companies themselves are saying about their, particularly their environmental footprint in terms of GHG emissions and water and waste. We begin to identify the sort of the, the hot spots, the spots of harm, and then we can match that to the financial institutions that are actually providing the funding, whether it be equity or, or debt. And once you've laid out that landscape, that's the point at which you can start to really put into context recommendations like stopping deforestation or uh, creating more uh, regenerative agriculture, investing in different uh, solutions in the food system. So that's what we will be doing in our, in our roadmap, laying out that landscape and then pointing out to financial institutions the key steps that, that they can make and, in fact, that they need to make if they want to drive transformative change through the food system. And we'll also be highlighting, of course, the risks that they'll face uh, if they continue to support business as usual and assume change won't come. Because I think we're all agreed change will happen. Uh, it may not be fast enough if, we, uh, if we're very sort of uh, passive about it, but things will change. John's mentioned technology. We can see climate itself is changing. That is having uh, a negative impact on food systems in some areas and, and also a positive impact uh, in some other parts of the world as well. So change is going to happen. Financial institutions will, will need to grapple with that. But Robin, you mentioned um, deforestation, actually. I just wanted to sort of um, pick up on, on that particular issue and then maybe also think about what we should be recommending for policymakers as we think about COP27. Deforestation is an issue, as you said, that's been sort of talked about, uh, about a lot. Um, you know, have we effectively done all we can? I mean, is it is it still an important feature of of solving the the climate crisis, or should should people actually should investors begin to focus on something else? No, 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 no. Absolutely, it, we have not done all we can by any means, and there is so much effort that still needs to go into at least conserving the forests as we have them. We should not be cutting down more forests. From an investor point of view, I. This gets into a, a little bit more of a political governmental issue if you look at the Brazilian policies and how they flip-flopped in the last few years. I, I do believe, and this is controversial I know within some of the business or the financial community, but I do believe that strong regulatory frameworks are absolutely essential. When a business has to comply to a regulation, you find that there is a stronger incentive for them to try and do some of the things that need to be done when it's an open-ended issue and it's the right thing to do, but there's not immediately this quarter, next quarter, or the next year's profitability to be seen in it. It's probably less urgent for uh, compliance. So, so I also think that we do have to get some – I think that the ISSB, the accounting standards coming in, is going to be helpful in guiding people in a certain direction. I think that we do have to focus on the issues of deforestation. We should stop import as the EU is 
talking about of deforestation linked imports into the EU. But we should also be thinking about that in terms of, you know, we export and import water by the use of water that's going into the products that are produced. I think that there are a number of things that investors should be asking companies about how much clarity they have on how much of this is in their supply chain. Because we see with the whole climate discussion that scope three emissions is very hard for a lot of companies to even begin wrapping their arms around. Or if we look at the textile supply chain, we have the brands that have the great profitability, but if you ask them beyond their uh, tier one or tier two suppliers, what's happening way upstream, most brands have no idea. So a lot of the embedded pollution or degradation or emissions are sitting in the supply chain where some of the brands simply don't own the problem. And one of the issues in this whole nature space is who owns these problems? Is it the producer in the tier three or tier four small company in Cambodia or Vietnam producing something? Is it the brand that is buying ultimately the product that comes from them? And how do we get to a point where the brand actually has the responsibility for ensuring that that tier four supplier is actually supplying it in a sustainable way? And I think that there's some real complexities embedded in how we're going to get responsibility built into the system. But one of the things is that investors can be putting pressure on the companies by asking them these questions. Yeah, I think I completely agree. And it's interesting that you've brought up supply chains. It's a, a recurring theme uh, in our work. And John mentioned the importance of, of traceability uh, a moment or two ago. And, and in fact, we've got an entire podcast devoted to that very topic. So uh, so look that one up and, uh, and you can hear our experts talking about traceability uh, in supply chains, particularly in the context of oceans and textiles, but it applies right across the food system and, and many others as well. So thank you to Planet Tracker's CEO, Robin Millington, and to our head of research, John Willis, for joining me uh, in today's podcast to discuss food systems. It's clear that when it comes to creating a more sustainable food system, we have our work cut out. However, as Robin was saying, it's not too late to act, and we really need that sense of urgency. Food systems are fundamental to solving the interlinked climate and nature crises. And we need governments to change the incentives for food system companies so that they become part of the solution. And importantly, we need financial institutions to use their funding to support the required transformation of the global food system. The financial community has a critical role to play in this year's COP, and we feel there is an extraordinary opportunity for policymakers, financial institutions and corporates to make headway on meaningful action on the climate crisis. Planet Tracker will be at COP27, speaking at a variety of sessions. We'd love to meet you. If you're heading to the summit, please do get in touch via our website. Once again, thank you for listening to Inside Track. You can subscribe to Planet Tracker's Inside Track wherever you get your podcasts or by going to Planet Tracker's YouTube channel. So you'll be the first to know when we return. I'm Peter Elwin. Thanks for listening.